Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. The reason we're here is the stories. It's the kid who never thought about going to college, and now because they were well-fed in their school for a period of time, and they stayed after school so they could take those exams, that's all we care about. That's the, it's the individual stories at the end of the day which really are the impact that Leckett is having. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. Welcome to part two of my interview with social entrepreneur Joseph Gittler, the founder of Leket Israel. To recap, Leket Israel is a startup nonprofit that has become the National Food Bank of Israel. Every year, Leket rescues and distributes over 45 million pounds of fruits and vegetables and 3 million cooked meals. And this year alone, Leket Israel will attract over 60,000 volunteers. So you started building the organization. Your your budget grew from seventy thousand to one hundred forty thousand to two hundred eighty thousand. I'm doing the math for you. Um, what happened next? What, what, today, I mean, today obviously it's 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 a very large organization. You've got hundred employees. You know, you had twenty five volunteers back then. Today, you have sixty thousand volunteers. But the focus changed a little bit from rescuing catered food to now also rescuing, you know, fresh produce. How did that come about? So, um, so, you know, I think we really focused for the first year or two on growing this cooked food. And it was, it was tough. Um, I think the toughest part was actually recruiting and keeping volunteers. It's not easy to get people to go out at that time at night. That was our number because the caterers were all in and, you don't want to sign up a caterer and then not have a volunteer. Right. That stinks. Okay. Yeah. Same way you want your volunteers to be happy that there'd be food for them to pick up, but we're in the rescue business. If a caterer does a good job, what am I going to do about it? So the, those first year or two were real learning experience. Corporate cafeterias were fantastic to start signing them up. They were very consistent. Okay. You know, they would cook 500 meals a day. They were always off 5%. So that really gave us a nice base also to let the agencies who rely, the agencies we were feeding to rely on us. So that was, that was really the first two years. In, I would say also probably 05, 06, I, you know, I noticed where I live, um, fruits on the ground from orange trees, lemon trees. And I just started to ask around and people would say to me, farmers also have a lot of waste. And then I started driving around um, and I noticed some packing houses. I just, again, knocked on the door. Uh, the first one, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, I believe the first one was a sweet potato. They were packing sweet potatoes, biggest in the country. And I just said, you know, I'm looking to provide sweet potatoes for the poor. Or just another guy asking us for a handout. I said a little different. I, I don't want what you can sell. But do you have stuff that you're not selling? Right? That's the whole 
That's the whole point of this organization. Why would there be stuff that they, they don't sell? Quality, customer cancellations, um, market price, all economics. In other words, if, if you have a, a product that the market price drops, the cost of retrieving that, that fruit or those vegetables exceeds what you can get in the market, so they don't bother doing it. Picking it, sometimes even, sometimes you've picked it. And transporting it might not make sense. It's hard to believe. Usually it's just because the land, and that's because the land is bountiful. You know, the, the bumper crop, which I thought was a good thing, it's good for consumers. It's not always so good for farmers. And we are there, you know, we are there to take advantage, if we may, of these anomalies in the marketplace. I know I'm starting to sound like, like a business vulture investors. We're here to take advantage of these anomalies in the marketplace, which basically we... We need as a world, people need to understand this, as a, as a society, we need to produce more food than we could consume because there can be a, a fire, a natural disaster, a bug, and suddenly we're, we're, we have 10% less food than we need to food, serve the world. We're in trouble. The difference is we're, we're doing like 40% more than what we need, 50% more what we need. And that's where the whole issue comes in in a place like Israel where you have Stuff that's not perfectly grade A, grading standards, and so that never gets makes it to the marketplace. That's a big part of what we get. Market price, the number one reason. Order cancellations, okay. Um, business uh, risk, and what I mean by that is a guy who waits and says, I think in another month I'm going to get a better price, I'm going to wait. And then a month comes, doesn't get that price, and by then sometimes the the crop may not be at the quality he needs. We're just, we're there to keep an eye on these things. We have a call center calling farmers day in, day out. What do you have? Where are you growing it? Do you have situations like this? And just keep us in mind, right? We're the last people on their mind. Right? I, I want their stuff and I don't want to pay for it. What percentage of the food that you now rescue is fruit and vegetables versus you know, army-based food or catered food? So by weight, I'd say about 90% agriculture, 10% cooked. Uh, by value, economic value, it's probably closer to 60-40. By what our NGO partners want, which at the end of the day, that might be the most important thing. They love the cooked food. That's number one on everyone's list, especially the proteins. Proteins are the most expensive. It's what the clientele wants. And we talk about a meal, we're talking about a meal. This is not some, um, we got 100 tomatoes, that's, that's 50, we got 100 tomatoes, that's 50 meals. This is a piece of protein and two side dishes, okay? A proper meal, primarily being rescued from the Army is our number one partner, over a million. How many bases do you do? You we're in about 65 bases now. I wish I, I could say we were in every base. There's so many, sadly, unfortunately, based on our, uh, complicated situation, complicated part of the world we're in. There are hundreds of bases. So we're in about 65 bases and many of the big ones. And the army is super proud of their relationship with us. You know, it, it, it's really important for the army to show that, um, that they're part of the social fabric of the country, which they are, right? Everyone always says the army is the great equalizer, uh, but going to the next level, which is utilizing army resources to help the poor through the work of Lackett is something the Army is super proud of. 
So year over year, obviously you grew. In 2007, you opened an additional warehouse in Nesher, which is up north uh, Israel. And uh, in 2015, obviously uh, you opened up a, a new and improved logistics center in Ranana. And actually just this past week- We moved. You moved <laughs> yeah. into, I, I was there for the opening and this new facility is just huge. It's a monstrosity. It's so how, big. How, how are you going to fill it? You know what's really crazy is? It's so small compared to the, some of the food banks I've been to in the U.S. And we move more food than many of them. How much food do you move? Well, uh, this year it should be about 45 million pounds. And with this new facility, it better grow exponentially. And if my CEO and COO are listening, you guys have your work cut out for them. You tell me to worry about the money, you're going to bring the food. So... They have a lot of work cut out for them because this facility is big. It's um, it sits on uh, six six point six dunams, which is um, we put that into acres. Oh, about one and a, one point uh, divided by four, whatever that is. There's a fraction in there, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm really bad. <laughs> um, it sits on on and it's it's about thirty three hundred square meters. The facility, okay, with 10 meter high ceilings and 1500 square meters of refrigeration space. Now, what does that all mean? We can store, this is only being used for agriculture, this facility. We can store 4 million pounds. 4 million pounds of fruits and vegetables at any one time. Wow. And we don't want to store, I mean, I, I would love to tell you, Yigal, every day, 4 million pounds went through. We're empty at the end of the day, okay? That's not going to happen. That would mean we're distributing 1.2 billion <laughs> pounds of fruits and vegetables. That would be great. But the capacity, the point of that number is we never will have to say no to a donation again for lack of uh, space, for lack of money to outsource to another refrigerated space. This space has enough room to fulfill all our dreams and all the dreams of the charities that we serve. We're going to be a place that they can store stuff if they need to. We're going to open it up to whoever needs it. And if we are unsuccessful at uh, filling it up, we'll rent some of it out to for-profit companies who will hopefully cover some of our costs. So so today you have obviously a huge facility, um, a, a very large operation, 100 employees, 60,000 volunteers, but you also reached 210 recipient organizations. So, so the organization moved from being sort of like a direct consumer where you would take these meals and redistribute them. And now you've got partners that are other organizations who are doing it for you. Okay, so that's structurally, if we wanted to be a bulk operator, it was the only way to go. You can't have it any other way. Uh, imagine if we took 40 million pounds of fruits and vegetables and tried to give that out to individual families. We actually have a project uh, now, which you saw yesterday uh, when you visited the facility, where we're providing 4,000 fruit and vegetable baskets to individual families. It is a nightmarish logistical operation. That's a very small percentage of what we're distributing. To distribute directly would be impossible. The only way to do this efficiently, cost-effectively, um, and again, as we talked about before, helping, I think, the max amount of people is by working through those NGOs who span the country. And it's important for me to note 
that we work throughout the state of Israel geographically. Uh, we, of course, also work with all sectors of Israeli society. To that point, you know, you, you serve Jews, you serve Arabs, you serve, you know, uh, Muslims and, and people really of all sects and religions, which it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's the great equalizer, right? I mean, poverty is not, uh, you know, it's universal. Yes. While poverty is stronger in certain communities in Israel, um, for me, it was never a question. and, And I always like to say, when will that question stop being asked? That's when we know we've really achieved something in this country. You would never go to New York and say to City Harvest, do you work with Chinese people? It just wouldn't, people would look at you like you're crazy. Um, We, from day one, it was obvious that we were going to build something national. And by building something national, we were going to work with everyone. Jews, Arabs, Druze, Christians, uh, Bedouins, refugees. Many people don't know there are tens of thousands of African refugees living in Israel. We're very proud of the work we do with them. In fact, you also employ um, Arab workers. We do. Again, we're equal opportunity employer. Um, we have uh, uh, Arab employees doing all different types of work. What I'm most proud of actually is we have a team of Israeli Arab females who work for us as paid pickers at farms, adding to the work of our tens of thousands of volunteers. Why I'm proud of that is because I'd love for everyone to work in high tech. I'd love to retrain people to have higher paying jobs, but there are people who are at the points in their lives where that's just not a possibility. And being able to provide these women with well-paying jobs, where, funnily enough, they always say, thank you, Joseph, for our great vacation because they get the Israeli holidays, um, which are primarily geared toward the Jewish calendar. But we all, they also get, they're all Muslims, they also get all the Muslim holidays off. So they, they like it, they have a pension. These are women who have been exploited their whole lives. And to have a job where they're getting paid, not in cash, straight to their bank account, and having a pension and having proper time off is something they never imagined in their life. We're very, very proud of it. It wasn't started as a coexistence project per se, but as an unintended consequence, we're very proud of it. Nutrition security is is obviously a, a major problem and you're, and, and you're trying to solve it. We call it nutritional insecurity. Okay. Got to add that I-N. Right. <laughs> nutritional insecurity. Um, <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the impact. You know, people generally, when you think about poverty and you think about people who are hungry, you remember the commercials on, on American television of, you know, these African kids getting rice and, and starving um, through famine. And that's not the typical person that you're trying to reach. There are people that you see in the street that look good, but nutritional insecurity really has an impact in their lives. So tell me a little bit about about number one, that problem, but number two, you know, the impact that you've seen on, on people who are recipients of your, of your program. Okay, so certainly in Israel, thankfully, we're not talking about that kind of poverty. The poverty we still see, shockingly, in parts of the world, first and foremost today in Yemen, what's going on there is a 
travesty. Some people do market it like that in Israel because it's good for business. But Leka doesn't take that tactic. We take the tactic of we're in a we're in the startup nation, uh, first world country, moving up the league tables, and um, the poor. It's good to be poor in Israel, so to speak. Obviously, everything is relative. No one's starving here. Um, most of the poor people have washing machines. They have televisions. Again, people understand what I'm talking about. But um, you know the impact though that we're hearing especially from children and the elderly, is really game-changing. Kids who are focusing their energies in school where they couldn't. If every day is like the Day of Atonement where you're fasting, it's hard to succeed in school. My kids come home, I'm starving. They just ate 15 minutes ago. It's, it's, these are kids who are, uh, and it's, they're not always poor. A lot of other things can be going on in the family. There could be drug issues, alcohol issues, uh, a parent could be in prison, a parent could have two jobs and just doesn't have time, the, 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 for, the good fortune we have to spend with our kids. You know, I sometimes say I spend too much time with my kids. <laughs> I'm lucky. But on the other hand, there are people uh, who just don't have that time. So a big emphasis, a big impact we're seeing is on youth at risk where the food we're providing them just gives them the sustenance to get through the school day, okay? And that's a huge impact. A lot of elderly, that's one of our flagship projects today, is working in subsidized housing for the elderly. There's government subsidized housing, which I, again, praise the government for. Uh, the elderly in Israel get, even without having paid in to something like Social Security, they get a, they get a, a I don't want to call it a handout, they get money from the government every month, of course, that's never enough to cover their costs. And we have in Israel, especially a lot of elderly people, immigrants who came from countries where Ethiopia, uh, Russia, where they, ha- they never worked or they had no pensions or their pensions are literally worth $1 a month, okay, in Israeli currency. And so these kind of people, what can they afford to eat? So bringing them a hot meal to this subsidized housing, where actually the only request we have is that they eat it together, trying to get them out of their rooms. Again, not our job. Our job is to feed people. But if we can come in with a little bit of our strength and say to the managers of these institutions, set up some tables and chairs, set up a heating element, bring in a keyboardist or maybe an accordion uh, once in a while to entertain these people, you're not just feeding them, you're, you're providing a little bit better quality of life than they've had. How do you measure success? So I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that we should measure it by what I just said, which is um, the impact on the people we're serving, which is certainly one way we measure it. Like it we really keep things much more um, mathematical. We really, because we treat this like a business, we run it like a business. Um, I wish we could pay our staff like it was a private business, but we can't. Um, we really, mo- for, we really judge ourselves primarily on our efficiencies. How much is it costing us to provide a kilo of fruits and vegetables? How much is it costing us to provide a cooked meal to the end user? That's really how we judge ourselves. And we see 2016 was better than 2017 or 20. We see, we, we see it, we judge it, we, we rank it, um, and we try to figure out ways of improving. But of course, 
that's not why we're here. That's secondary. The reason we're here is the stories. It's the kid who never thought about going to college, and now because they were well-fed in their school for a period of time, and they stayed after school so they could take those exams, that's all we care about. That's the, it's the individual stories at the end of the day which really are the impact that Leckett is having. At the opening of your facility this week, you showed a video of some of the recipients and the stories of how, you know, they got onto great army units because of the support that you provided. Can, can you give us an example? So the, the video you saw talks about a school in Jerusalem where actually until we got involved, it was a technical school. Again, important, but the kids didn't think of doing what in Israel called the Bagriot. Those are the High level, I don't want to call them regents. They're way harder than the regents. Matriculation exams. Like matriculation. There you go. A-levels for the British <laughs> listeners. And, you know, again, my kids, that's that's second nature. They're not, there's, they know they're taking them. Like, it's not even something we discuss. The question is, how hard are the ones that they're going to be taking? What level are they going to be taking them at? This was a school they barely even offered those options. And if they offered them, they were at what are called the three points as opposed to the four or five points. And us providing food at lunch, rescued from hotels and army bases and police bases and caterers, gave these kids the opportunity to say, well, if you're going to give me a good lunch, I'll stay in school. And once I'm staying in school, I'm not just going to waste my time here. I'm going to try to take advantage of what's being offered by the school. And the school, because the kids were staying, started to offer higher quality education. I can't take credit for that, okay? What we can take credit for is trying to put a resource in place which allows the school, because if you think about it, let's say 100 kids, 100 kids, $5 a day to give them a lunch, okay? So that's $500 a day. Now multiply that. Now we're going to test you. Multiply that by 200 school days a year. How much money is that? What's 500 times 2,000? 10,000. It's a lot of money. They don't have that money. So like it comes in, we take care of that for you, okay? Now you have the food in place. Now you have to just do the, but okay, that's the easy part. The hard part is getting the kids to stay, educating them, giving them this hope. But we're seeing it. We're in, we're doing about 20 schools like that around the country. You know, one of the principles of charity um, that the Maimonides set forth in, in his, when he codified Jewish law, was that we're very sensitive to, you know, when we give charity, to not embarrassing other people. And, you know, somebody getting food, you would think it's embarrassing, you know, putting your hand out and, and getting, whether it's vegetables or, or hot food that you otherwise couldn't get. And yet in a recent report that the Ministry of Labor, Social Affairs, and Social Services produced, there was actually a very surprising outcome, which was that really people who participated in these programs, their self-image improved, which is surprising. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and so, you know, when people think about supporting organizations like this, it, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive but you're really not just helping with nutrition 
or nutritional insecurity, as you mentioned, but you're helping them build their characters and build their productivity and the impact, the life impact of that on these recipients could be enormous. Well, I think, um, you know, we were discussing before their self-esteem. Knowing, we have a video that we put out a few years ago where, where this young woman said, when I started getting this food through Leket in my school, I felt like for the first time in my life, someone cared about me. Could you imagine someone saying that? That's what this report is saying. People feel neglected, okay? They, getting this food makes them feel like the people of the state of Israel care for them and are worried about them. I want to give them a chance to succeed. I think that's a big part of it. In this particular report as well, this food is de- delivered directly to the home. I think that makes a big difference. I think if we were to ask the same question at people who go to... Um, Soup kitchens, I'm not sure they would have exactly the same reaction. But knowing that someone cares about you, and cares so much to work out a project where the food goes all the way to your house, causing, you know, your neighbors aren't seeing, you know, so if it was something very public, but here, this project that we do together with the government and another organization called Kol Chabad, um, taking that last mile, I think it makes it, it's it's a major headache, but that I'm I'm really thinking that that might be why it elicited that response. Taking it all the way right to the person's door is a very powerful statement. Talking about success, so your budget today is about fifteen million dollars, right? Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of produce and prepared meals that you guys process. Is $50 million. So for every dollar that they donate to your organization, the return on investment, that's something we know a lot about at Bernstein, the return on investment is three and a half times. Yeah, that's why I should have made this a for-profit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great return on investment. Um, and actually we expect it to get better um, as we fill out that uh, distribution center. Right, just, just get better. We don't have to add more staff. We just, the more fruits and vegetables we can put in there, that leverage should get even better. It's a beautiful thing to be in a charity where you have that kind of leverage. Most charities can't, they're just not in that business. But because we get the food free of charge, and I give great thanks to our catering and agricultural partners for doing that, and we distribute it free of charge, it's a very important thing to note. We don't sell any of it. Um, that's what's provided leverage. So it's a really, it's a... a when I think about the win-win in Leket, so 60,000 volunteers, 110 employees, okay, um, environmental, big environmental impact. This would all be you know, turning into... Um, compost. Comp- well, it, <laughs> it wouldn't, I wish. <laughs> yeah. It should be just so easy. Things turn. Composting is very hard. Um, <laughs> but it would be turning, you know, gases that impact the environment. Um Oh, yeah, and by the way, we're also feeding poor people. Like, sometimes we forget that we're doing so many win-win-wins in our work. So it's really a, a unique privilege. Where do you see Leckett in five years from now? So I, I think that mostly more of the same. 
I, I think about sometimes we should go this direction, that direction. I say, Joseph, you just released a report that says you're getting 5%, 7%, 10%. Have you run out of demand? So when we run out of demand, then we should look to do some other things. I think one thing you might start seeing with Leket is maybe a little bit of value added work for the food. So we're looking for partners. I don't want to spend money on it. I don't want to build a kitchen. But we're looking for partners who have the right facilities at the right times, probably after hours, who would allow us to come in and bring in volunteers who would, instead of picking the food or packing the food, would actually take those excess vegetables and value add to it, make it into a soup, make it into a carrot cake, and something we've been talking about for a long time. There are programs like this around the world where they actually also utilize um, youth at risk or people with disabilities. They try to really combine all those. I don't know if we're going to go to that level, but I know we have tens of thousands of volunteers knocking down our door. People want to volunteer. We have no trouble recruiting volunteers. I had the privilege of, of volunteering uh, for my daughter's bat mitzvah, uh, where the whole family came out and uh, and picked fruits, and it was a it was a lot of fun and it was meaningful, and and you know for for, for our listeners who who want to spend a day just doing great work, um, great volunteer work, definitely be in touch with Leket because they 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 will set it up and it's it's uh, you know I was at your your factory yesterday. Um, in Ranana, the, the older one, and the place was full of volunteers working hard. They weren't slacking off. They were working hard, and the amount of of, of produce that they were processing and boxing and shipping was incredible. I mean, it was inspiring, and and uh, it's it's impressive how you've industrialized this great you know this great charity. That's the Henry Ford of volunteering. <laughs> there we go. Um, I want to ask you another question. Um, Two more questions. Sure. Jerusalem Post named you one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world. In what way is what you're doing? You're laughing, but I understand. <laughs> I mean, it's a grain of salt. I understand. It, it was a, a one-time. Okay. One uh, you know, BB makes it every year. I, I made it once. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> but in what way do you think that what you're doing is influential? It's really... Man, I should have read the. Uh, I should have read their post before I, uh, <laughs> I, I came on. Like, I think. Um, so I think our impact on mass volunteering is extremely influential. And I think the fact that we've had a quarter million people volunteering over the last, I used to say ten years, probably five years, is very very impactful on them. People um, in the privileged lives we live need to have that opportunity. I think we are a um, an organization which has really led the way in fighting poverty in a clever way. I think that's probably our big, biggest impact is that we, we've created programs which are so obvious. Why shouldn't we be taking excess cooked food and feeding the poor? Why shouldn't we be taking excess agriculture and feeding the poor? These are such obvious ideas and not only did we do it, I think we've hit a home run with it. We've really scaled it up. Not as scaled up as I'd like. I want it bigger. I'm greedy. I want more. Um, but I think, you know, I think I was probably in that list because of the fact that I had an idea 
um, and executed on it, and it's a success. That's that's why I, I think there are um, lots of people who would love to be in my shoes and have the time to dedicate their self, themselves to the charity world. Um, so maybe you get some kudos for that. But the real kudos, you get at the end of the day, the other people who are on this show, the people who are on How I Built This, it's it's you only get on it because you're successful, not because you wanted to try something. And so, um, and I have a great team uh, who, who do a good job making sure that people think we're very successful. That always helps. Can your model be globally scaled? Um, so I think the kind of work that we do, the topic of food rescue is being done all over the world, certainly in the rich Western world. Everyone's doing it a little bit differently. So in Toronto, the supermarkets are really important. And in Israel, we don't work with supermarkets at all. And in New York, this is important. It changes in different places. I think the main impact that we're having around the world is people seeing two areas where they thought it was impossible to do, cooked food especially. They see it's a possibility, and they're pushing the envelope and trying to figure out ways to do it in places where it's been tough, North America specifically. And in agriculture, which really no one was doing and no one is doing like us at our scale, the clientele is at, they don't want canned goods anymore. And canned goods are on the downswing. Companies are getting more efficient. So what we've done in Israel is really now today serving as a model for other food banks and food rescue organizations who understand that it doesn't matter where you are, within an hour or two of where you are, anywhere there's of any big city, there's agriculture. Granted, the seasons might be different than here in Israel. That's part of our success. The weather here makes a big difference. But it doesn't matter. You're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You're right. In January, there's nothing to pick like we have here today in Israel. Um, but June to October, there's mega farms there, and there's lots of work to do. And that's what we're really trying to push on our partner organizations around the world. Joseph Gettler, the... Uh founder of Leket Israel. Leket, by the way, means what? Leket means gleaning, one of the biblical imperatives, telling farmers how, did they, how they had to take care of the poor. And so gleaning, we are the modern day gleaners. We're not requiring anyone to leave something in the field for the poor. It's happening without anyone telling them to do it. And Leket Israel has won many awards, including the Presidential Volunteer Award in, in 2011, the Nefesh Benefesh Bone Zion Prize in 2014, the Ministry of Environmental Protection Seal of Excellence, the Yigal Alon Prize for Pioneering Excellence in 2016, then an honorary fellowship from the Rupin Academic College in 2017. Um, if you want to help this organization, how, should, how can people do that? Okay, so uh, really two ways. One is volunteering. So when you're coming to Israel, please reach out to us. Um, especially now, end of the year, financial support or beginning of the year, always good. Um, the $15 million that you raise is virtually, the vast majority of that is, is raised say 90% donations. Is, 90% is philanthropy and the rest is government and corporate support. Um, we work very hard to do that. I wish it was different. If anyone has a way to tell me how to do that, please get in touch with me. Um, and the easiest way to get in touch, so my, my personal email Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, at leket.org. If you don't want to talk to me, 
info at leket.org, our website, www.leket.org. Please don't be shy to reach out to us. Please don't be shy to support us. The best I can guarantee is we will do our very best with with whatever funds you provide. Thank you very much for joining us. We really, really do appreciate it. It's an honor to uh, to sit back and, and look at what you've built. I've known you for a long time, and to see this and the impact that you guys are having is just uh, just great. Well, thank you for the opportunity for putting me on the air and uh, for helping spread the word. Nothing helps like it more than opportunities like this. So thank you for going out of your normal uh, box and bringing social entrepreneurship as well to your listeners. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. And in our new upcoming Just Starting Up segment, we'll give entrepreneurs with a big idea the opportunity to bring those ideas to the world. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please, share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.